Good morning. My name is Samuel Postma. This morning, our scripture reading is from the book of Proverbs. Please follow along in your Bibles or use the screens. I will be reading selected verses from chapter 15 in the New International Version. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise adorns knowledge, but the mouth of the fool gushes folly. A soothing tongue is a tree of life, but a perverse tongue crushes the spirit. The house of the righteous contains great treasure, but the income of the wicked brings ruin. The lips of the wise spread knowledge, but the hearts of fools are not upright. The Lord detests the sacrifice of the wicked, but the prayer of the upright pleases him. Death and destruction lie open before the Lord. How much more do human hearts? The discerning heart seeks knowledge, but the mouth of a fool feeds on folly. A person finds joy in giving an apt reply, and how good is a timely word. The Lord detests the thoughts of the wicked, but gracious words are pure in his sight. The heart of the righteous weighs its answers, but the mouth of the wicked gushes evil. The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. The word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. My name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here. And I think my first movie was E.T. Just an amazing uh, movie. I had just come to America, actually, the year before, so I really identified with E.T., the alien We are in our series in the book of Proverbs, and today I want to use words to talk about words. And um, I feel like it's really timely for our culture, uh, for us to think about this. And so um, I think there's a lot more here we could unpack, uh, but let's um, use our minutes uh, to think about this together. I think there are two fundamental truths about the idea of words uh, that we uh, know. Number one is that words are powerful. There is a potency and an impact to words. And because of that, it's kind of dangerous. James chapter 1 verse 19 warns us and says, be slow to speak. Whenever you see a sign that says slow, that means there's also danger, right? This is true. If the road narrows, you slow down. If the road is slippery, you slow down. If it's windy, you slow down. Because if you don't slow down, you're going to get hurt because it's dangerous. And this is the idea I have in my head when I read this. Slow to speak. Take it easy. Measure twice. Think thrice. Do whatever you have to do because once you say it, you can't unsay it. And boy, do I personally know this, right? James chapter 1, verse 22 says, do not merely listen to the word. Words are so powerful that if you do nothing with it, if you just hear it, if you think it's just entertainment or if it's just for you to enjoy or for you to do nothing with, you're absolutely wrong. Words are words because they're meant to be listened to, and you have to do something with it. You can't just ignore it. You have to respect words. Okay, James chapter 3, verse 2 and following. I'm going to read for us because I think this is the 
one passage that really gets at the power of what words are. We all stumble, James says, in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect. Now think about this. James says nobody is perfect. But if you claim to be perfect, your final test is your perfection with your words. And also, nobody's perfect. But if you claim you are, the way we're going to know that you're perfect is you're perfect in your speech. Able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Uh, I just took the Bainbridge Ferry. And I was kind of back in line, and I thought, surely I'm not going to get onto this boat. But guess what? I got on just fine, and there were lots of cars behind me who got on just fine because I asked, <clears throat> I asked the crew, and guess, <clears throat> guess how many cars fit on the Bainbridge Ferry? 200. On average, it fits 200 cars. Do you think you have a big car? Do you have a big truck? It's not so big compared to the boat, right? And something so small, something way smaller than the car controls something so big. That's the image here, right? Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, it sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. That's really an apt image for us. We didn't have fires. Do we have fires this year in eastern Washington? Not like last year, right? Last year was crazy. You know, just imagine that all started with a spark. All the woods here could all burn from one spark. And that's the very vivid image that James, was, James wants us to understand. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. If you don't know that, you can YouTube this. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. You can YouTube this too. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. Friends, words are so, so powerful. One wrong word, and your life can go down the tubes. One right word, and you can save a life. Think about the person who's negotiating with the suicide attempt person standing on the edge of a building or a bridge. Words are so powerful. And also words are emblematic. Matthew 12, 34 says, How can you speak good things when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And I think this is why words are powerful. We give words power. When somebody says something, we know it's not just like sound waves hitting our eardrums. We know that's not all there is to it. It's an expression from the heart, 
from their core to your core. It can hit you. Right? Words are emblematic. Uh, our culture knows this, I think, and there's a way our culture is dealing with the potency and the emblematic nature of words. Uh, three, three big ways that we're dealing with it I thought I'd highlight for us. Number one, our culture is dealing with freedom of speech issues. We have always maintained as a, as a society and as a country that you have the right to the freedom of speech. But think about the flip side of that. Words are so powerful and words are emblematic. It's, it's not light stuff. It's not just sound waves. And so on the one hand, yes, you're free. But on the other hand, it's really, really dangerous. You got to slow it down. Right? We don't really know how to balance this. And right now in our culture, uh, with so much opportunity to exercise freedom of speech, I mean, every picture is worth a thousand words. So there are a lot of words out there. If you count up all the pictures and videos, just our society has been inundated with free speech. And we know it's not just that that's good. We need balancing truths. We need guardrails, right? And so we have sort of a war on, uh, regarding the freedom of speech. Uh, there's also word policing or thought policing. You know, this is sort of our sort of attempt at trying to tame freedom of speech. I mean, James says you can't tame the tongue, and our society is trying to tame the tongue. And it's not pretty. It's really ugly. It's filled with maybe good intent. I don't even know. But we know it's not working. Nobody's happy about speech in our culture. And then finally, there is this idea of permanence that's emerging. Uh, news outlets are having to deal with this because you would think back in the day when everything was written on paper, it'd be more permanent. Right? But it turns out when you write on a cloud instead of paper, it's even more permanent. So if you're 16 years old and you do, you do something goofy, and then Mer the Mercer Island reporter writes up a little story about you, and then 20 years later, you go to apply for a job or a school, and they Google you, and they come up with this story written by the Mercer Island reporter 20 years ago, and then you don't get the job or you don't get into the school. What about that? What do you do with the permanence of words in our culture? You know, there's this uh, movement, growing movement, uh, something around the idea of your right to be forgotten. Like, do you have a right to be forgotten? Or do employers and other interested parties have a right to your stories? Do they get to have access to you? Who decides what story gets forgotten and what story lives forever on the internets? Do you decide that? Is it your story? These are complicated issues. And our culture is wrestling with the idea of words because we know words are powerful and we know words are emblematic. It stands for so much more than mere sound waves, mere letters. I think 
We, you and I, we know words are uh, attempts at truth. All of us, we use words, even though words are double-edged swords in our lives. We can't just get away from them because we are all grasping at reality, and that's what we use words for. Words not only describe reality, but words also create reality via this powerful, powerful thing called narratives. And so it frames literally the facts that are coming at you. They are all meaningless until you put a narrative around it. And then it means something. It means life or death. And so we're all trying to do this right. We want to get this. Understand the role of truth in our lives. Express it. Say it. Describe it. Define it. Also, we are using words to try to connect with one another. How do you connect? You say the right words. Right? Words are sort of the currency in some ways of what it means to, uh, for social creatures. Words are currency. And third, uh, we are grasping at meaning when we are using words. We're not just trying to live well now. We're trying to understand what is beyond this. And we use words to do it. We also use words to defend and attack. We weaponize words. With a word, you can stop a bullet. Right? Ask the negotiator. Or we offer words as gifts. You're not even trying to connect with somebody. You just want to give them a gift. Say a nice word. Peter, that sermon, my goodness. You, you did it again. <laughs> Those are words that I hope to hear someday. <laughs> Proverbs 15 has uh, lots of uh, things to say about words. Let's just go through a few of them. Uh, verse 1, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Do you know this is true? That words can modify or change emotions, situations, and direct or redirect the course of relationships. Like, words can do that. Can you believe that? Like, relationships are real, and yet words are actually impacting it. Your emotions, a word can change it. it change the, the way you feel about your life, about the world. Uh, I want to tell you, I think, two words that I think some of are maybe, maybe the most powerful words we can use with each other. And it's only two words. If there's a third word, it's no good. Okay? And if it's just one word, it's no good. It's got to be these two words. And those words are, I'm sorry. It can't be, I apologize. That doesn't count. And it can't be, I'm sorry, but. It has to be, I'm sorry, Period. And it can't be with a Canadian accent because then it sounds like you're just being polite. <laughs> That's what they just say. It's got to be the American way. I'm sorry, period. And the, the metaphor you got to remember when you're saying these two words are tennis. So when you say I'm sorry, it's akin to hitting the ball over the net. Do you keep swinging the racket after the ball's in their court? Do you? Who plays tennis like that? Nobody. That's what it's like when you hit the ball over, I'm sorry, and then you keep swinging. You look ridiculous. 
So you got to say, I'm sorry, and then shut up. The ball's in their court. You got to let it sit, keep your mouth closed, and wait, and then just take it. Whatever ball comes back at you, you got to take it. It's their ball. They get to hit it. Right? I'm sorry. So let's practice. One, two, three. I'm sorry. How'd that feel? You just changed my life. You're, it's okay. I forgive you. Okay, verse two. The tongue of the wise adorns knowledge, but the mouth of the fool gushes folly. I immediately thought about this one story where my words revealed a fool that I was. I was, in fact, it's the year that I watched E.T. It was uh, 1982. I had just come to this country. I've been here about a year. I was in grade school, in the third grade, and we were on a class trip, and we were supposed to be walking in a, uh, in a line and maintain a certain, like, sort of a distance from, you know, the person in front of you, but I messed up, and apparently there was a gap in front of me. But I'd been in this country like one year. How many years do you have to be in this country to know what the word gap means? I didn't know what the word gap means. My teacher said to me, Peter, there's a gap in front of you. And I said, where? Because <laughs> I was trying to cover up the fact that I didn't know what it meant. And then she just came up and she pushed me forward. And I just felt so stupid. I tried to cover it up, you know. And she, she pulled off my mask. So the tongue of the wise adorns knowledge, but the mouth of the fool gushes folly. And I gushed folly that day. I was in third grade. I still remember it. It was really traumatizing, I think. Okay, verse 4. The soothing tongue is a tree of life, but a perverse tongue crushes the spirit. Your words can either soothe or crush. Just think about that. Soothe or crush. And like when those opportunities come up, you don't realize that that's what's before you. Because usually something intense is going on. Like somebody's made a mistake. They spilled a glass of milk or whatever. You know, and it's, it's like that moment when you get cut and then you bleed what you bleed. And you can bleed kindness and forgiveness and understanding and largeness. Or you can bleed meanness and judgment and smallness. It's like it just comes on you, and then you bleed, and you're like, ah, I bled that. Right? You can soothe or crush. And then by the time you've, you've done the crushing, it's too late. And then you've got to use those other two powerful words. Right? Um, I told this story, I think, years ago, so I think it's worth telling again. Um, so... I, I, Susie and I were in university together. It was my, freshman, uh, my sophomore year, her freshman year, and I was not into her yet. It was the end of our first term. And uh, truth be told, I think she was flirting with me and maybe some other guys too, I'm not sure. Um, but I was like beginning to notice her, but not really, you know. And uh, InterVarsity always went away on a retreat to uh, the Renaissance Center in Detroit from Ann Arbor. And so the, it was the last night of the retreat, and we stayed up all night, a bunch of us talking and swapping stories. And I ended up telling a lot of my sort of New York City rebellion days uh, stories. And, you know, classic Peter, I overshared, and I felt bad, and I had this emotional hangover going on. Um, and then Susie just sort of cut through everybody's, you know, uh, the room, and she just looked at me, and she said, and I think this is something like this. 
in quotes, she said, Peter, I think the fact that you're telling these stories means that you're changing. Yeah, think about that for one second, right? Because if you're telling the story, that means you have some distance from it. You have some self-awareness, some perspective, maybe even a judgment on it. So it is a sign that you're changing if you're telling the story, right? And so I kind of understood that. And it was, that was the, if I could identify a Cupid's arrow moment, that was it. And then we all went to bed and I went back to my room and my roommate's name was John and he was a wrestler. And so he was asleep and I'm, I fell asleep next to him around like 6.30 or 7 in the morning. And around 8 o'clock, he wakes up thinking that I've been asleep all night. And he's a wrestler, so he starts wrestling me and trying to wake me up. And I'm kind of really sort of sleepy and sleeping. And I accidentally say, Susie, stop it. <laughs> and then he really wakes me up. Peter, what did you say? I went home that uh, morning, and then I wrote, I was about to take a nap, and before I took a nap, I wrote in my journal, in quotes, Lord, I'd like to get to know Susie better. And that was it. That was the beginning of her nightmare. <laughs> but that soothing tongue was a tree of life to me. Okay, verse 6. The house of the righteous contains great treasure, but the income of the wicked brings ruin. Okay, one more Susie story. Somebody can use words to share their great treasure with you. Think about that. That you sitting here in this room, you have treasure inside of you, and the way you share that treasure is using your words. Right? I was uh, two weeks away from my wedding date 22 years ago. And two weeks before that, Susie had tried to break up the engagement with me. And then, you know, we have to take turns having doubts. You know this, right? Because if you doubt at the same time, it ends. And so the, um, the conservation of doubt kind of shifts. And so it was my turn to doubt, and I was with a church plant uh, group with, and this is the week that I met my mentor, Gwen, in Vermont. And we were sitting in her basement in the boiler room, and I had been crying and sharing about all my doubts and how she had tried to break up with me, and now I wanted to break up with her, nah, nah, nah. And, um, and then Gwen just cut through all of it, and she was holding my hands, and I can still picture it right now. She said, Peter, do you love Susie? And the way she asked it, that energy with which she asked it, it just cut through everything. And I said, I do. I love Susie. And then that was it. And then the rest is history. She shared, Gwen shared from her treasure with me and changed the course of my life. Verse 23. A person finds joy in giving an apt reply and how good is a timely word? I'm going to give you a mathematical equation. Word plus timing equals perfection. I mean, it's like magic. When you speak the perfect word at the perfect time, it just lights up the room. Everything changes. Nothing is the same. Wow. Wow. And we only get a few of those, you know, in our lifetime, really. 
Uh, I had an example that I, it's not quite like that, but it's what I had this week. I was spending some time with a pastor who was really struggling, and I didn't know that when I first showed up. And then after our time together, he texted me this. I just wanted to thank you for asking me twice how I was doing and then actually noticing how I responded. It actually gave me the ability to literally cry to God in my car on the way back. I mean, did I give him the gift or did he give me the gift? Word plus timing equals perfection. But words are only as good as the heart that they flow from. Verse 11 says, death and destruction lie open before the Lord. How much more do human hearts? God is always, always, always looking at the heart. God's never fooled by our words. Our words are just sound waves. It's just the means. It's just the transmitting device what he's really watching for our hearts. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7 says, God does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance of things, but God looks at the heart. Verse 14, the discerning heart seeks knowledge, but the mouth of a fool feeds on folly. Notice that the word heart is personified. It's not the person that's seeking knowledge, but it's the heart. The heart is the engine of you. Your engine is your heart. Everything flows from your heart. Life and death flows from your heart. Your curiosity, your desire to learn and grow and change comes from your heart. It's not your mind that's curious. It's your heart that's hungry. It's always the heart. The agency belongs to the heart. Verse 26, the Lord detests the thoughts of the wicked, but, the gracious, but gracious words are pure in his sight. Notice it does not say wicked thoughts. If you have a, you know, let's say a wicked thought, however we define that, I won't go into what the word wicked means today. But uh, if you have a wicked thought, you're sort of mad at yourself. Like the self is mad at the wicked thought. But the Bible says, no, 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 no. The thought is nothing. It comes from the one who is wicked. So when you have a wicked thought, it's not about the thought at all. It's actually about you, your heart. You are wicked. That's why you had the wicked thought. Again, the engine is the heart. Verse 28, the heart of the righteous weighs its answers, but the mouth of the wicked gushes evil. What is a mouth? It's just a faucet. It's not the source of water. It transmits water, right? You can put a new faucet in your sink. It doesn't matter unless that sink is connected to a pipe that's connected to a reservoir. The reservoir is your heart. And so it's the heart of the righteous that weighs its answers. It's not the righteous. It's not you. It's your heart that's doing all of the work. It does the heavy lifting. Our culture, I think, understands this. And so uh, it has basically a two-fold strategy for how to deal with the heart. Number one, culture says... You just have to express yourself. 
Just, it just affirms the expression of whatever is inside of you. And then it swings all the way to the other side of the pendulum and says, no, 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 hold on, time out. Just kidding. You got to control it. So either you express or you suppress. That's our culture's best solution for you and the contents of your heart. You know, Facebook is so dangerous because it's a platform, you know, and it's a triggered space. And I don't think Facebook started that way, but it's become sort of a soapbox. And so a lot of people migrated over to Instagram, which Facebook also owns. And then no lately I've been noticing that Instagram has more of a soapbox feel to it too. The descriptions of the cool Instagram, you know, Visco pictures are a little bit like, uh, just it's got more edge to it. It's got more opinion. And then the comments are getting longer, the replies. You know, now, now where do we go if we want to escape the soapbox? What's next? I'm not young enough to know. Facebook to Instagram to what? Is there another platform? All of you are too old. You know, none of us know. <laughs> right? I think TikTok. Do you go to TikTok? Snap? I don't know. But this is basically what our society tells us to do. Express. You got to be yourself. Be your true self. Your truth. Speak it. Say it. Show it. Live it. Tell it. Shout it from the mountaintops. Don't be ashamed of yourself. Be who you are, culture says. And then you start getting in trouble. And then you have to suppress it now. I'm a fan of stand-up comedy. I would say that Every stand-up comedy routine that's been at least an hour long mentions this fact of culture, that they are beginning to get in trouble more and more, whereas back in the day, and by back in the day, they mean like five years ago, you can say whatever you wanted as long as it was within your set. As long as you were on stage as a stand-up comedian, you can say whatever. And so people would go to hear stand-up comedians just so they don't feel like they're crazy. You know, I just need to hear people say stuff that's true, that's happening. Even Christians would be like, I don't care if they curse or they're profane. I just still need to hear somebody say it. And now they're saying, I can't say it. I'm getting in trouble. And then now, because of the permanence of the internet, their older material from like 10, 15 years ago are being dug up and so-and-so is this and so-and-so said that and they're apologizing all over the place. Express or suppress. Swing back and forth, back and forth. But the Bible says there's a third way. A third way to deal with your words, your truth, your identity. Whatever you're dealing with, whoever you are, whatever is on your heart, whatever thought, wicked or righteous, to use Pro Proverbs language. There's a third way. What is that third way? And that is to pray your thoughts. Express, suppress, and then rising above it all, there is pray your words. Pray your words. Verse 8 says, The Lord detests the sacrifice of the wicked, but the prayer of the upright pleases him. Verse 29, the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. I think there is a way that we have so, uh, so many ways to just use words 
whether we are posting on social media, whether we are texting each other, we have the ability to not pray. That's always an option. And I think there is a way we're forgetting to exercise this muscle of prayer. And so if you have one takeaway from this week's sermon, it's to pray. Try praying something. Like you feel something, try praying it. You think something, try praying it. Try this third way of letting your heart be a heart without just expressing it or just suppressing it. I want to close with this one idea. There is one final word that shuts up all other words. Because all of our words, all the ways that we seek to express ourselves, the reason we can't break up with words, the reason we will always, always have to deal with the potency of words is because with our words, we are trying to grasp at reality what is true. We can't not do that. But there is one word, this word logos or logos, This word can mean the truth. It can mean connection. It can mean meaning. It can mean power. And it can mean a gift. And scripture says in 1 John 1, in the beginning was the word or logos and the word was with God and the word was God. Friends, the reason we use words is because all of us are longing for the one and true final word. Until Christ comes, we're going to keep grasping. We're going to keep groping in the dark. But one day, we are going to come face to face with the word himself, and we will then finally feel all of the urge to speak, to use words, be satiated. We will cease to have to speak. And our knees will bow. And what will what will flow from us are the only words that we have always longed to speak. Worthy, worthy, worthy. Holy, holy, holy. That's what we're doing when we pray something, when we criticize something. All we're saying is, I just wanted this one thing all along. First John chapter one verse, uh, John chapter one verse fourteen says the word or logos became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Hebrews chapter one verse one to two. At various times in the past and in various different ways, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets. But in our own time, in the last days, He has spoken to us through His Son. Matthew chapter seventeen verse five. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. I really believe this that all our words are just a placeholder for the presence of the final word of God to appear and just shut everybody up. Wouldn't that be great? Today is the first Sunday of the month. And so uh, after service and during communion, we'll have uh, Holly here uh, ready to pray with you when you are ready. It's also our Benevolent Sunday, so if you have a special offering for that, the basket is in the back. But we are going to do uh, communion together today. And today, I want, you to, I want to invite you to pray 
uh, invite God, the living word, to be a presence in your heart and in your life and to calm you down, to calm us down so that we don't have to use so many words so that we can know we are okay. So may God speak a word over you today uh, as at least comes up and gives us the words of institution and leads us in communion.